Good morning. This is Spin Class. We're talking politics. Your host, Michael Fragan, here on the Nachum Siegel Network, NachumSiegel.com, and on the NSN app. And I'm very pleased to welcome Arya Lightstone to the show, uh, joining us from an undisclosed location uh, somewhere outdoors in the American countryside. Uh, from 2017 to 2021, Arya Lightstone served as the senior advisor to the most influential U.S. ambassador to Israel ever, David Friedman, the author of Sledgehammer, a different book than the one we're going to talk about today. But Lightstone helped advance the U.S.-Israel bilateral relations and the implementation of the Abraham Accords, which he continues to work on in uh, different forms today. I must say, uh, Arye, before you get to say, I did look up the book, which everybody should pre-order, Let My People Know, The Incredible Story of Middle East Peace and What Lies Ahead. And currently, even on pre-order, it is the number one bestseller on Amazon in Kabbalah and mysticism. So either uh, you you decided to enter a different category when it came to the competition, uh, very strategically, I might add, and I'll, I'll, I'll say that, but uh, or... Whoever do, puts those categories up at Amazon doesn't actually read the books. Arye, welcome to Spin Class. Ah, Michael, thank you so much for that. Actually, uh, the, the book currently uh, is number one in history of Judaism, as well as Israeli history, international diplomacy, and national and international security. We'll call Kabbalah a good throw-in. Uh, so <laughs> uh, in, in terms of that, we're very blessed. I've got a fantastic team at Encounter Books uh, who've done a ridiculously good job of pushing the book, but in addition to them doing a great job of pushing the book, I think people are interested in learning about what the Abraham Accords are, why they still exist, and why they're likely to expand and to grow uh, in the not too distant future. Well, there's no question that your you, your team, Ambassador Friedman, and obviously President Trump upended all the conventional wisdom around Middle East peace, around Israel, around moving the embassy, etc. Such an incredible list of accomplishments vis-a-vis that uh, specific, all all that conventional wisdom, that it just couldn't be done without a solution to the Israel-Palestinian conflict. Tell us, go back in time a little bit to when 2017, the beginning of your tenure in the U.S. Embassy, then in Tel Aviv, and then, you know, take us through those very interesting, and I'm sure very rewarding for you, those very interesting four years. Yeah, no, I mean, what an incredible privilege to work uh, for Ambassador David Friedman, uh, there wasn't a day that went by that I didn't learn something meaningful and consequential, uh, not only in terms of U.S.-Israel relations, but really in terms of how to conduct yourself as a mensch, as a visionary, as a strategist. So that, that, was, that was an honor and a privilege. And then uh, he, w- he was successful not because he had those talents, although he does have those talents. He was successful because he had a relationship with the president and had those talents. And what made that unique was, and I speak about this in the book, Senator Tom Cotton oftentimes remarks that when he travels around the world, our allies would say, why don't we have a political appointee? Why do we have a career appointee? And just to give you the example that he gives, he gives the difference in between Japan and South Korea. Japan almost always gets a political appointee, and South Korea almost always gets one of our top senior career State Department officials. Now, the top senior career State Department official has 30 years under his or her belt and is likely a highly qualified diplomat who knows the ins and outs of the embassies and the State Department and the United States of America's very complicated government. 
the political appointee likely doesn't know where the restroom is in the first two weeks that they're there. So why would those countries ask for a political appointee? And the reason is connectivity. When a, when a senior diplomat has an opportunity to act on something, it goes back in memo form and it goes through even the people who know the system extremely well through a very convoluted and complicated process that many governments are. Our government specializes in convoluted processes. The political appointee normally with one phone call can speak to the secretary of state, the vice president, perhaps the president, and to be able to address something. People lose track of the fact that everybody in the executive branch works for the president of the United States of America. And so when Ambassador Friedman received his job, he A, knew the president for longest and likely had the closest relationship with him outside of Jared Kushner. And therefore, on all things U.S.-Israel, he didn't have to go through the process or the system. He did what's supposed to happen. He worked for the president of the United States of America. And just to watch that happen in action was fantastic. And I, I also address this in the book. Basically, when you say he undoes the paradigm that had occurred, he basically said, what is in the America's best interest? And if it was in America's best interest, we did it. And if it wasn't in America's best interest, we didn't do it. And we're extremely blessed that the relationship that we have with Israel is unequivocally a, in, the, in the interest of the United States of America. And therefore, every action that we took to strengthen that relationship indeed strengthened America. And that's what we did. And I watched Ambassador Friedman do that and assisted him in that for the better part of four years. So let's talk about a couple very uh, specific issues. Uh, I think number one is certainly the one that continues to resonate so much with our own community, the one you know, not just when I say our own community, the one in the five towns uh, from which uh, you and I and Ambassador Friedman hail, but the wider pro-Israel Jewish community, which is essentially, I'll just go out and say, righting the wrong that had been existed for years, actually violating U.S. law in having the embassy in a different city than was Israel's capital city and how that came came to place. And of course, the, you know, the violence and the apocalypse that was going to be that was going to ensue from this move, which, of course, as we know, never happened. Uh, so just a twofold question. Number one, if you can kind of go take us behind the scenes with regard to that decision making. And number two, uh, how did that the, the lack of the reaction kind of pave the way, perhaps, to future peace endeavors, i.e. the Abraham Accords? Yeah, so I'm supposed to be supporting Let My People Know, my book. For this story, you absolutely have <laughs> you to gotta read the book. Friedman's book. You gotta get Ambassador Friedman's book, Sledgehammer. That there is there are very few heroes of the decision to move the embassy to Jerusalem. The first is the president, because had President Trump not made that decision, he was the one who was elected, he was the one who made the promise, he's the one who made the decision. But after that, it's not a very long list. There were other people who supported it, but the advocates for it. Uh, Ambassador Friedman goes through that story so beautifully in his book, Sledgehammer. And Ambassador Friedman played the largest uh, role in that specific decision, without a doubt, not only from the ideation, but down to the implementation. It was my high honor to be a part of each one of those milestones on the way in terms of the implementation. One of the goals of my book was to walk people behind the scenes and say, okay, we move the embassy to Jerusalem. Who does that matter to? What is it like on the first day that somebody came in to get their passport from our embassy in Jerusalem, to get a visa from the embassy in Jerusalem, to go to the first 4th of July party in Yerushalayim in Jerusalem. What, what was that like 
outside of the the academic halls that describe, well, this theory versus that theory, because here's the biggest issue with our foreign policy. You have a lot of think tank experts who talk about stuff, and they mostly talk about it to other think tank experts, and then they convince themselves of what they've said, and then they write papers to prove that they were correct without a lot of on-the-ground practical uh, realization. So I had the privilege of being the on-the-ground practical person. When when Ambassador Friedman worked with President Trump for the recognition of Jerusalem and open, ultimately the opening of the embassy on May 14, 2018 at 4.11 p.m., 70 hours to the minute of when Harry Truman recognized Israel as a state but not Jerusalem as its capital, right? 70 years, as you said, so beautifully correcting that wrong, rectifying our law, the United States of America's law that we had as the Jerusalem Embassy Act since 1995. It was my honor to be able to be there on the first morning that we opened up for people to come in for passports. I had the privilege on December 7th, uh, 2017, the president recognized Jerusalem on December 6th, 2017. Governor Rick Scott, then governor, now Senator Rick Scott, was in Israel with his wife on a Florida delegation. I met him outside the Kotel at 7.45 a.m. on December 7th, and I was the first U.S. diplomat in history to welcome anybody to the Kotel, to the Western Wall, as welcome to Jerusalem, the capital of Israel. Because prior to the president's recognition on December 6th, 2017, Jerusalem was what we call in American jurisprudence a corpus separatum. It was an international city. It belonged to no one. So if it belonged to no one, it certainly was not the capital of the state of Israel. So I got to be there with the first governor, with the first American citizen, and welcome them to Jerusalem, the capital of Israel. And I got to tell you, there were only five of us when I did that, and not one of us had a dry eye at the conclusion of that. It was really spectacular, a moment in history. Wow, it seems <clears throat> it's just so incredible to be standing there when you're making history, witnessing history, being a part of history. And, uh, you know, look, we're no strangers to Israel. We're no strangers to Yerushalayim. And having that, uh, you know, walking in the footsteps of history has got to be an incredible personal uh, journey and triumph for you. Uh, so take, a, take us through that a little bit. And, you know, from the progression, I guess, that you had in, in this job that you had over over time, you know, how you got into it and, you know, take us through to, I guess, you know, the Abraham Accords and, you know, how that yeah. transition came about. No, thank you. I, I, this for the Lightstones has been, for, and I say the Lightstones, me and my wife and I picked up with four little kids and moved halfway across the world. Now, granted, Israel is a second home to so many of us, uh, but it was not in our immediate plans. It probably wasn't even in our midterm plans. And on the spur of the moment, Ambassador Friedman asked us, we said yes, and we picked up and came. And I don't mean to demonstrate that we had any form of sacrifice for that, but there certainly was a significant adjustment. And one of the things that the Friedmans did for the Lightstones and Ambassador Friedman and Tammy Friedman did for us that we'll be forever more grateful for is they included us in nearly everything that they could include us in. And therefore, my kids felt like they came for a purpose and for a mission and even when they walked into school with kids that they did not know in a language that they did not speak with a curriculum, believe me, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, that, uh, that Jewish national schools in Renana don't look a lot like Yeshiva Katana of Long Island or Shalamis of Long Island. There was a substantial you don't significant say. adjustment. I, I don't say. <laughs> there was a meaningful adjustment, but my kids showed up to school 
and at home with a sense of purpose and pride that we were representing the United States of America and we're bettering one of our most important relations, and that's obviously with the great state of Israel. And and my job was a funny job because it didn't really exist. There had never really been a senior advisor to anybody nearly as consequential as Ambassador Friedman because there had never been an ambassador as consequential as Ambassador David Friedman. So therefore, my job went from a guy who edited papers and sort of looked for nuanced issues to the guy that when Ambassador Friedman traveled and he spent a lot of time in the States with the president and Jared and Avi uh, and the Secretary of State Pompeo, obviously, uh, that uh, that they brought me into meetings in, in his stead, which was completely and totally unheard of. There's a ranking in the embassy, and I certainly would not have been ranked number two from a organizational management perspective, but I had the trust of the ambassador, and therefore uh, he placed my office immediately next to his, and I, I got to be... Uh, you know, the, the, the gateway, uh, Tim. And as that job progressed, look, there were many times, really many times, I would fly, uh, you know, uh, courtesy of the U.S. government, backseat economy middle uh, from uh, Israel to Washington, D.C. They can't get you a window or an aisle seat? I mean, that's... Now, the, 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 yeah, York, you, the U.S. government doesn't have enough juice to get you a a decent seat on the plane. There are many, there are many places where the U.S. government spends money uh, less prudently than I would like them to on on flights to and from post is not one of the places that they splurge. And uh, and I, I would travel, I, I think it was nine times, maybe it was more uh, back and forth with a document I never saw and I never read just to be able to give it back to Jared or to Avi Berkowitz for them to be able to read it and to edit it and to bring it back. So I was a glorified fax machine for components of the position, but I did it willingly and excitingly because if my role in peace in the Middle East was the trusted person to bring the document back and forth, then that was my role. At some point in time, it, I got read into the document and got to be a participant in the document. And then at some other points in time, I got to be elevated to be able to take meetings with Secretary Pompeo and Prime Minister Netanyahu, just the three of us. Uh, and, and that was all because Ambassador Friedman placed great trust in me and I worked my tail off in order to get that trust. And then when the Abraham Accords came to formulation, uh, Jared Kushner, who I got to know only through Ambassador Freeman, Jared Kushner and Avi Berkowitz, who were the fulcrum of all things uh, Abraham Accords, said, Ari, will you join our team and help put these uh, fantastic opportunities into practice? Amazing. Well, look, what a great show. We're talking to Ari Lightstone here on Spin Class, and the new book is Let My People Know About uh, Middle East Peace. So, Ari, I want to transition a little bit because, you know, obviously it wouldn't be a good show about, and I wouldn't be doing my job without getting some of your opinions, not just, you know, the history. But, you know, obviously Israel has been through a little bit of political turmoil since you left. I don't want to give you total credit from you leaving your post and Israel going into uh somewhat of the throes of, uh, well, political excitement, but there's a new prime minister, um, uh, Yair Lapid. The government has collapsed, new elections. Joe Biden is coming to, is going to Israel uh, pretty soon. Uh, He's also going to Saudi Arabia, which is a country, I guess, that you perhaps may have visited, maybe secretly, maybe not so secretly. So give us, uh, give us your take on what's going on in the Middle East these days. Yeah, so in terms of Israeli elections, and this was a source of enormous frustration in the course of of our time there, because there was 
alternative prime ministers. There were frequent elections. Even when there weren't elections, there was a threat of elections. And it got frustrating. But look, it's, it's coming right after July 4th. On July 4th, we celebrate, you know, the, the, the building of a democracy. And democracies are ugly. Democracies are challenging, but they're democracies. Uh, I'll give you an example to this. It was extremely annoying for people in Renana who live next to Prime Minister Bennett. And it was. I mean, the, the riots and the protests and the lack of civility and, and the police and the security, all of those things. But if you just look at 2,000 years have gone by for the Jews without a homeland, and now the greatest annoyance you have is that the duly elected prime minister of a democratically Jewish state in the biblical land of Israel lives on your block. I mean, let's let's just understand first world problems when we've got them. So Israel and political turmoil is, is a blessing. There's an Israel to have political turmoil. And there's an Israel with all this political turmoil where there's a transition of power that's peaceful and pleasant each and every time. And please, God will continue to be peaceful and pleasant each and every time. So that's the political turmoil. In terms of President Biden's upcoming visit, I said this all the time, and this might not make me as popular as I'd like to be, but I'm rooting for his success, especially as it comes to the Abraham Accords, for the following reason. It's not a Republican ideal. It's not a Democratic ideal. It's an American ideal. It's absolutely in the interest of the United States of America that all of our allies in that region and around the world work more closely together, succeed more greatly together and develop peace and prosperity and security for themselves. It's, it's in all of our interests. Now, do I have a lot of hope that the president is going to execute on that? No, because he's starting from so far behind the line of scrimmage. Uh, it, he almost starts with a Hail Mary. He began by saying he wants to make Saudi into a pariah nation. And he began by wanting to distance some daylight in between the United States and, and the state of Israel. And if you remember uh, the spokesperson from the State Department, uh, when questioned by Matt Lee, who's a spectacular reporter from AP, uh, the spokesperson's name is Ned Price. Uh, Matt pushed him in May of uh, almost exactly a year ago, pushed him on what were the agreements called, signed in between Israel and the UAE and Bahrain and Sudan and Kosovo and Morocco, and he wouldn't even name the agreements. So it's very difficult to be a cheerleader and an expander of something that you're not willing to say. The first time senior cabinet members in office really touted the Abraham Accords were two days after the Afghanistan debacle. So I'm rooting for their success. I'm just not highly optimistic. Well, then I guess that presupposes my next question is what is next in your opinion for the Abraham Accords, right? Which are the you know countries? I mean, there's been rumblings over the last week or so with regard to, I guess, two weeks with regard to a tripartite agreement between Egypt, uh, Saudi and and uh, Israel with regard to some islands in the Red Sea. And, you know, possibly, I, I, the, I guess, go back to the words conventional wisdom. Well, uh, yeah. you know, is that the original the Abraham Accords would not have been possible without the blessing of of uh, MBS and uh, Saudi. But uh, that doesn't mean there's actually been uh, actual uh, <clears throat> actual peace, actual an actual peace treaty. So who's next? I mean, if you would pro- prognosticate, because there's no reason not to prognosticate. You're no longer in office. So I'll, I'll prognosticate in the following thing. What's fascinating about the Middle East today is that you have some countries that are fighting extremism on both sides. And when I say extremism on both sides, 
There's extremism as we classically know it. And President Trump called this out during his election uh, campaign and, and while he was the president, but radical Islam. Uh, most of these countries, uh, UAE, Bahrain, even Saudi, uh, and others, Morocco certainly, uh, believe that radical Islam is a much greater threat to them than it is to the rest of the world, and they're correct about that. And they fight daily and relentlessly against radical Islam, and we should root for their success in a meaningful way, and to the degree that we can help them, we should help them with that. On the other hand, they also fight not as well because it's a harder fight for them, but people who who purely want to destroy religion as a whole, that's really our fight in America today. You see this uh, desire to destroy anything that's religious. And you've got extremism on both sides. And you've got countries that are fighting to hold what I would call the rational and moral middle there. And those are the countries that today are not competing about religion. And they're not competing militarily, but they are competing for their people. And part of competing for their people means competing economically. And to me, the Abraham Accords come down to the following thing. There is a risk involved in joining the Abraham Accords. Does the reward compensate for that risk? Meaning it's just like any other business person. There's a risk reward benefit. Is the benefit enough in order to take that risk? And my argument is yes. And if you look, there are 12, I think maybe even 14 daily flights in between the Israel and the UAE today, not in July and August. Nobody wants to go to either of those countries in July and August. But the other 10 months of the year, almost every seat on almost every one of those flights is full. And do you know who knows that? Saudi knows that. Do you know why Saudi knows that? Because every one of those flights fly over Saudi Arabia. And that means you've got hundreds, if not thousands of people going back and forth each day as tourists, as investors, as visitors, as cultural ties grow. And the UAE and Israel is strengthening, and Israel and Bahrain is strengthening, and Israel and Morocco is strengthening, and Israel and Kosovo is strengthening. Sudan is a separate story. And as those strengthen all of the rest of the countries in the region, whether it's Saudi or Qatar or Oman or Pakistan or Mauritania, there's many, many others that look at this and say, one second, if I want what's best for my people, can I really sit there and not give them the Abraham Accords, because the Abraham Accords is a benefit for my people. It's not a political statement. It's not a philosophical statement, but it's a practical statement that generates jobs and technology and intelligence and military. Why is Israel such a great ally of the United States? Yes, we share values. Yes, we share democracy. Yes, we share a future. But at the end of the day, on brass taxes, they say, Israel is one of our greatest partners in terms of economic development, military uh, relations, intelligence relations, and growing those things where the United States of America can benefit from that relationship with Israel. You don't think any of the rest of the countries of the Middle East can? Of course they can. So in that competition, every one of those countries is looking to see where the benefit is. And when they see that there's a benefit, they will ultimately make the decision that's in the best interest of their countries. Okay, so as we close, I want to give one more question. Arya, what would be the thing that surprised you most about the Arab countries that you dealt with? Uh, and it doesn't have to be about each one, I'm saying. But, you know, what, what surprised you? What, what stood out to you as a thing that you, an assumption you may have made about the UAE, Bahrain, or some of these other countries uh, that you were totally wrong about? 
Uh, if, if I can do an entire list, I would do an entire list. But I'll, I'll say the following I'll give you – you could do a top two if you want. <laughs> uh, in, in, in my book, Let My People Know, I discuss what it was like for the first Israelis to meet the first Emiratis in Abu Dhabi, the first Israelis to meet the first Bahrainis in Manama. And when you say that, they're, that they had met secretly some other places in the past, but when – when you get welcomed into your home, when we hosted the first Bahrainis for dinner at the embassy in Jerusalem, Ambassador Friedman, when he hosted them, what it was like at those meals? And, and the answer is, is that you have to check all your preconceived notions at the door. The, the level of sophistication and, and kindness surprised me. Um, and, and that almost comes off as sounding that, that I, I had this very terrible preconceived notion before and I didn't I had almost no notion and I was blown away it's almost like when somebody travels out of town uh, like Denver where I'm from and they show up and everybody says hello it's so nice to see you as opposed to when somebody's in the tri-state area maybe that happens less the, the when they talk about Arab hospitality it's not a myth it it is so sincere and so serious and so meaningful that it to me was was just so heartwarming and and by the way the israelis are exactly the same that there was a kindred spirit in terms of the hospitality and the warmth and the excitement to get to know each other there were 55 other uh places where they just missed each other which was our job as the facilitators and the negotiators but but in terms of the sincere desire to be together that was that was front and center which is why I know that the Abraham Accords are going to expand because I've been and spent meaningful time in those other countries. And I see the same seriousness, the same warmth, and the same level of hospitality and the same interest in breaking down those barriers. Those barriers will be broken down, I hope, sooner than later. But it, it, it is inevitable in its progress. Okay, Arye Lightstone, the book is Let My People Know, The Incredible Story of Middle East Peace and What Lies Ahead. Uh, will be released next week on July 12th. Uh, go out by it's already a number one bestseller in several categories. Uh, too many to be named right here. Uh, as you kind of have to catch, go back to the beginning of the show in order to get that. Thanks for joining us here on Spin Class. Fascinating story. Thank you for taking us through in uh, just a couple minutes these incredible four years that you had in Yerushalayim. Michael, thanks. It's always great speaking to you. It really is. Always a pleasure. And that's it for this week here on Spin Class here on the Nachum Siegel Network. Stay tuned for Jew in the City Speaks with Allison Joseph. See you next week.